0: Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Good evening, everybody. Uh, My name is Russell Storer and I'm the head of Asian and Pacific Art here at the Queensland Art Gallery, Gallery of Modern Art. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land that we meet upon tonight. I'd like to acknowledge here Ms Lenine Ford, AC, Chancellor of Griffith University, and Professor Marie Wilson, Dean Academic of Business, Griffith University as well as Andrew O'Neill, Director of Griffith Asia Institute. I'd also like to note the apologies of Professor Ian O'Connor, Vice-Chancellor and President, Griffith University, and Maud Page, Acting Deputy Director, Curatorial and Collection Development here at the Gallery. I'd also like to acknowledge that we have a wonderful group of teachers and students here tonight from Brisbane State High School. This is our first Perspectives Asia for 2013 and we're delighted to be working again with the Griffith Asia Institute at Griffith University to bring you another series of invigorating, informative and insightful talks by leaders in diverse fields discussing society, culture and politics in the Asia Pacific region. I'd like to thank Andrew O'Neill and Natasha Vary from the Griffith Asia Institute for their close collaboration with the Gallery's Australian Centre of Asia-Pacific Art in developing and staging the Perspectives Asia program, which is now in its ninth year. It's a hugely important initiative for us, providing a context for our wide-ranging exhibition and cinema programs, Profiling Asian and Pacific Art, as you can see outside in our current Asia-Pacific Triennial. On another note, I should also mention that Andrew will be participating in our GOMA Talks panel discussion tomorrow night, presented in partnership with Radio National and hosted by Paul Barclay. Looking at Australia's position in the Asian century, this discussion will be held here at GOMA at 6.30pm, so please join us if you can. We're very fortunate tonight and to kick off the year to have Dr. Mr Jim Adams as our speaker for this evening. Mr Adams spent 37 years at the World Bank, retiring last year. He was vice president for East Asia from 2007 to 2012 and also worked on East Asia in the early 1980s. For almost half of his career he worked on Africa, leading the banks program as the regional director in Kenya in the late 1980s and as country director in Tanzania and Uganda from 1995 to 2002. If you look closely at his tie, I think you'll see the evidence of that. From 2002 to 2007, he served as a head of operational policy Jim studied at Colgate University in Hamilton, New York and received his Master's from Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton. Mr Adams' presentation this evening is titled Asian Perspective, the World Bank's Role in East Asia and we'll explore how the World Bank has responded to the vast changes taking place in the region. With rapid economic growth, the reduction of poverty and a more complex network of regional institutions, international organisations such as the World Bank have necessarily had to recalibrate. Where these fascinating developments lead will be highly important to our region, and it's extremely timely and fortunate to have the opportunity to hear Mr. Adams' insight tonight. Please join me in welcoming Jim Adams.
1: I I want to begin by saying the last time I was in uh, Brisbane I was actually working for the World Bank. It was after the flood here. And I think it's it's an interesting manifestation of the change in the bank because what we were doing was actually talking to some of the Brisbane authorities about some of the work that the World Bank had done on disasters generally and on floods specifically, and actually learning a lot from the Brisbane experience that we could then convey uh, to the future work that we do on disasters. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the increased work on disasters as part of my presentation. Uh, I'd like to start really with a message about good news in East Asia. East Asia remains the most dynamic economic region in the globe. And in fact, while it faced certainly a downturn during the international financial crisis in 07 and 08, um, it, it survived that crisis much better than the rest of the world. Today, the region is growing at about 8 percent, and by the region that I describe in East Asia, it's the developing part because these are the clients of the bank, um, led by China and the rapid growth in China. There has been, however, a slowing of growth, again driven heavily by the China experience, but today the East Asia developing countries remain the most dynamic and most robust growing economies in the continent in the world, and I think that's provided a basis for an enormous change. Interestingly, the East Asia region is now much more important, not just as a regional entity, but it's an important source that drives overall global growth. If we look at the overall record um, in terms of the international performance of the region, the region in 1990 comprised somewhere between 5 and 6% of global GDP, of global gross domestic product. Today that number has more than doubled obviously led by the China and the very strong success of China, but also reflecting the broader success in the region in terms of growth. So today East Asia is an important and uh, vital part of the overall international growth experience. Um, One of the things the World Bank focuses on is not just overall growth, but a particular interest obviously in poverty reduction. Um, Poverty is a, a key focus of the World Bank efforts globally, but particularly in the region, Uh, the poverty reduction gains in the East Asia region really have been impressive. Um, Since 2000, poverty uh, has fallen from 50 percent of the population in developing East Asia to today where the number is literally half of that. Now, this performance um, has again been heavily driven uh, by China, and China's performance with respect to the reduction in number of people in poverty indeed comprises a large percentage of the overall reduction in number of people. But because of the size of China, one of the things that I I have to remind people is it still faces a major challenge on the poverty front. We estimate today still a quarter of a billion people in China are um, living on less than $2 a day, and that represents about half of the number of people in poverty in the region. Indonesia obviously still Is an enormous challenge, over 100 million people in poverty. And throughout the region, um, one sees um, enormous poverty challenges that remain in spite of the the impressive growth performance that I spoke about. Now, we, in the World Bank, we have a fairly broad set of programs. Um, The World Bank comprises actually two different institutions on the World Bank side, and I'll talk a little bit about each of them we have a commercial lending arm which lends to the better-off countries, including China. For that lending, we borrow in commercial markets and then relend at a very small markup to those countries. So we see that as the commercial part of the bank. We also have in the bank what's called the International Development Association, and this is a facility where every three years the rich countries in the world gather together and make a contribution on a grant basis to the World Bank, and we take those contributions and relend them to poorer countries. So in the East Asia region actually, um, obviously most of the Pacific countries borrow from the the IDA, the softer part of the bank. Um, Even Vietnam still receives money from the softer part of the bank, but Vietnam is a case where we lend both commercial funds and soft funds. And so we're able to use these two instruments as appropriate given the level of income and the commercial capacity of the country to facilitate um, a fairly large lending program and i 'll talk specifically about the lending program, but i 'd like to focus first on four general areas that, we'll work, that the bank works in. One is on poverty and inequality. We work very closely with governments in putting together programs which we feel can reduce the level of poverty that can over time dramatically impact poverty as well as providing services which can facilitate um, the addressing of poverty problems. We work extensively on Infrastructure in the region, infrastructure is the largest individual lending area of the bank, and so we do provide significant amounts of money um, for building dams, for building roads, for building a variety of urban services. The third area I'd focus on, and it's a newer area in the bank, is governance, the way governments work, and particularly um, a particular attention is how uh, the, the voice and the strength of populations can impact government. Um, an important part of that now is anti-corruption activities, where the bank has a very broad program of anti-corruption activities, both in East Asia and more broadly. And finally, to come back to my comment about my ex- involvement in, with Brisbane, the bank now has a very large program on disaster relief. And so during my tenure in uh, the bank, we worked heavily um, on China after the earthquake. We worked on floods in Philippines and in Southeast Asia, and essentially uh, and obviously as a follow-up to the tsunami in Indonesia uh, in Thailand. And so what, what, what you have in that area is a close relationship, we feel, between the climate change challenges that are coming as well as the specific natural disasters, and that's become an important regional challenge for the bank. Now, in addition to regional challenges, it's terribly important to drive down and look at the variety of countries in the region. And so I thought I could talk a little bit about each of the major areas that the bank focuses on. Uh, China, interestingly, does remain a borrower of the bank. People always ask me um, why China borrows when it has substantial funding on its own. In fact, that's China's choice because the bank would be prepared to engage in a relationship with China that didn't involve financing. But the government of China feels very strongly that by taking bank money, as well as its technical assistance, it'll get a better service than if it simply took technical services from the bank. So China borrows about a billion and a half dollars a year from the World Bank. It's all commercial lending. It's not the softer lending. Although when China joined the bank in the early 80s and through the first decade of our relationship, when China had a much lower per capita income, it in fact was eligible for for the uh, softer bank funding. Um, in China, the bank is extensively involved, mostly in Western China. The government feels we should be in areas where capacity is less, where incomes are less. We have a fairly broad program across infrastructure um, and across some of the social services, and we focus particularly in the social services on reforming the social services. China faces a special challenges that, as it's emerges a more market economy, some of its traditional ways of supporting education, health are no longer functional. We also work very closely with China on China's role in the more, uh, in the global world, in its role as a both as now a provider of resources to some countries, to some countries, but more broadly in terms of its interaction uh, with the global international framework. And so, China has become an important member of the World Bank. It's become, it has has an executive director in the World Bank. One of the 25 executive directors is exclusively for China. And it's obviously become much more involved in global discussions of economic challenges, of economic possibilities. We work with a number of what we call upper middle income countries in the region. This would include obviously Indonesia. We have a program in Malaysia that that is exclusively um, analytic work. And so while we work with the government of Malaysia um, diagnosing their economic challenges and problems they have not asked us for lending. We do a great deal of work in the Philippines where, again, the effort there is broad, as in China, both on infrastructure and on social services. One of the particular areas we focus on in the middle-income countries is the development of uh, social safety nets to deal with changes in the environment a program that really did become important in the global financial crisis, because as incomes were hit, having an ability to respond and provide resources to the poorer segments of population is obviously an important activity. We also deal with some of the lower-income countries. As I indicated, Vietnam is a bit in transition, but is still considered a lower-income country. Cambodia, Laos are examples of that, where again we combine enormous effort on infrastructure and building infrastructure with an effort on providing social sectors. Uh, A lot of work with our colleagues in the IMF on building stronger financial systems, on building stronger macroeconomic programs. And finally, one of the things that we scaled up dramatically in the bank during my tenure was the work on Pacific states. Um, The Pacific faces some special challenges. Um, The bank has a program for small states, for small island states, generally, where we work to try to draw lessons not just from the Pacific, but also from small states in Africa, from small states in the Caribbean. But we have scaled up dramatically the amount of support we provide to the Pacific. Uh, We focus on economic reform as well as, again, infrastructure and the social sectors. And we're spending a lot of time working with our colleagues in the Asian Development Bank on the climate change challenge that's going to confront the Pacific. I think one of the still less well understood challenges is the amount of change that climate change is going to be bring to the Pacific. I think the Pacific countries recognize this, but I don't think it's recognized broadly internationally enough. And so one of the things we try to do with our colleagues in the Asian Development Bank is to scale up work in that area and provide support to the individual countries in thinking how they're going to deal with sea level rise and climate change and the challenges they're going to confront as a result. The region is facing increased macroeconomic challenges. Um, In in the global environment today, trade has not been as robust as it's been over the last 20 years. We are seeing deleveraging by European banks, and it has implications particularly for the middle-income countries in the regions. We're seeing commodity price fluctuations, which present major challenges to the region. Now, these challenges have been mitigated by a couple of things. One of the advantages after the global financial crisis is lower borrowing costs and the availability of financial in financial markets of funding at much lower interest rates, certainly for the middle-income countries and to the extent it borrows for China, because of the region's good performance over the last 10 years since the financial crisis in the late 1990s. Um, The region has built up substantial surpluses, substantial reserves uh, in the capital accounts, and that certainly has served it well in the context of the crisis. And obviously the growth and dramatic growth of China over the last 10 years, averaging over 10 percent a year, has been an enormous source of income and prosperity for the region more generally. Indeed, if you look at what's developed in terms of the manufacturing sector in the region, there are very close linkages between East Asia and the middle income countries uh, in East Asia and China where inputs are produced across the region and in fact then assembled in China for export to Europe and the United States. And that's been a very successful model of development for the region. We've tried to the extent possible to ensure that our regional strategy obviously relates to broader World Bank priorities. And so we do worry more broadly in the bank about the importance of economic growth. We do worry broadly in the bank about targeting the poor and the vulnerable and strengthening programs to deal with that. As I indicated, governance, anti-corruption, a much stronger program in the bank. And finally, we worry about risks and challenges, and as I've indicated, some of the crises and uh, climate change challenges that are going to place the the region. And so we, we see ourselves, obviously, in the World Bank as trying to draw the best, not just from regional experience but from global experience in terms of how to work with our clients on ensuring that they respond effectively to the challenges they face. So East Asia is one step back, as one steps back, is still an enormously stable region from the economic perspective, and continuity in that is obviously important. Sustaining growth is obviously important, and I think the challenge the World Bank has to face is obviously as the region gets richer, how does it respond? to that change, and how does it remain an effective partner in a region that is succeeding and it is making progress. At the same time, there are some new challenges. Um, I think one of the things that's happened actually just subsequent to my departure for the bank, the opening up in Myanmar is an important opportunity for the region in terms of bringing this country, which for so long has been isolated from the international economy, has been isolated politically from the international environment, is now re-engaging with the region Um, I do feel very strongly that the additional work that we're doing in the Pacific Islands is an important change. Uh, A third change that we've worked very hard on is to try more consistently to draw experience from the countries within the region, what's called South-South experience, that uh, countries in the region have enormous examples that they can provide to other countries in the region. The tradition in the development business has been for too long – where most of the examples of success, most of the examples of progress that are cited are from better-off countries, or from countries that have already succeeded. And drawing some of the intermediate experiences when regional countries do well, I think is an important and effective way of improving policies, of improving uh, government performance across the region. One of the final challenges, and it's a global challenge, is the whole question of how climate change and how, uh, investments necessary for climate change is going to be financed globally. Um, there, there's been enormous talks in the UN meetings about very large commitments of resources to help countries adjust to climate change. Uh, the fact is to date that's been largely talk and not action and the actual availability of resources to help deal with fin- fi- climate change um, has not been as robust as one would have liked. This is a particular concern of the Pacific Island countries Indeed, as we meet with the Pacific Island countries, it's a major bone of contention that they're asking where are the funds for climate change? How do we begin not only dealing with mitigation of some of the implications of climate change, but adapting our our economies to deal with the problem over the longer term? I think this has a particular interest, quite frankly, for Australia and New Zealand, because if if the present uh, predictions come true, um, as the sea level rises – I think one of the only options for the populations in some of the countries is going to be to to come to Australia and New Zealand as a last resort. So I think there's a special interest for Australian and New Zealand concern with respect to that issue. While we deal with broad broad regional issues, we also drive down and and work hard to try to develop country-specific programs which respond to the demands of those particular countries. And so, for example, in China, as I indicated, heavy focus on Western China, heavy focus on the poor regions. Uh, green growth is a big challenge for China. We're, we're heavily engaged in the energy sector. We've done a, one, of, you know, one of the largest wind farms in the world in China, have been financed by the bank. Uh, we spend a lot of time working on innovations for the government within individual projects. When those innovations work, the government is then very effective at taking those innovations and spreading them out throughout their program more generally. Um, uh, We we have failures as well, and obviously if there's a failure, it's written off by the government as a failure. Um, In the upper middle income countries, as I said, a lot of work on what are called conditional cash transfer programs to give the government the capacity to get resources to poor segments of the population, um, either when there's a financial challenge, when there's an economic downturn. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a a type of project which actually emerged in Latin America, in Brazil and Mexico, and is now very successfully being done in Indonesia and the Philippines. Uh, Lower-income countries, obviously, we have a fairly broad range of investments, and depending upon the interest of individual countries, we respond. We do much more in agriculture in the poorer countries than we do in the better-off countries. We also provide an enormous amount of support for private sector in those countries where we will typically be working on policy changes to encourage the private sector. We also work very closely with the private sector arm of the World Bank. In the middle 1950s, a third arm of the World Bank was created called the International Finance Corporation, and they lend not to governments as the World Bank does, but they lend directly to the private sector entities. And finally, in the Pacific, again, a fairly broad range of activities. We do work with the regional institutions. Uh, We work obviously very closely with the Australian and the New Zealand government. We work uh, extensively on economic reform. Uh, These are governments that have very mixed records with respect to economic performance. And the challenge is how do we convince these poor governments that economic reform, economic policy changes can make a difference in their performance overall. Uh, One of the things the bank does in addition to lending is a lot of analytic work to support government programs, studies of sectors, studies of the education sector, study of the health sector. We do a lot of that at the country level. We'll study the transport sectors, make recommendations on how to improve it. But in addition to these country level studies, the bank takes one topic each year and does what's called a world development report. So I just thought I'd talk a little bit about the last two World Development Reports, because in both cases, in addition to the global report, the East Asia region has prepared companion, a companion document on what the implications of that report is uh, for the region. And so, in 2011, the Bank did a large report on what was called fragile and conflict states. These are the poorer countries. Uh, there are a number of conflict afflicted cases, a number of fragile cases in the region, heavily in the Pacific. And uh, East Asia actually has six fragile states by the by the categorization the bank uses. Um, that's the second most fragile states after Africa. And I think this is something that sometimes gets lost when we talk about all the success of the region. This is also a region that has some countries that are struggling. And so in addition to the global report on how to be more effective in fragile and conflict-affected states, We did a report making some suggestions about what can be done in the region. The other part of fragility in the region that gets lost again because of the success is that in a number of the middle-income countries, you have regional conflicts, which are very important. So no one reads very much about the conflict in in southern Thailand, but it's an enormous challenge to the Thai government, and I think a very worrying development for the region. Mindanao and Philippines gets a little more attention. Mindanao is a constant source of tension um, and fragility in the Philippines. Um, One of the biggest success stories in changing a fragile situation at the regional level has been what's happened in Aceh in Indonesia subsequent to um, the tsunami there, that the agreement that was reached with the former Finnish president, Marty Asari, has led to a situation where Aceh region, which once faced real internal dissent, now has a government that's run – Uh, by the leadership of the former rebel groups and is now transitioning very rapidly into a more stable environment. That's a nice success story. It it drives a number of lessons that we're working with more broadly. But those successes uh, are too rare in the development business, and dealing with regional conflicts is, in fact, an important part of the overall fragile state agenda. In 2012, the World Bank's, what we call our WDR, World Development Report, focused on gender and particularly the importance of greater involvement in female populations across the globe in the economic benefits and in the economy of the countries of the region. In the, in the, for East Asia, we did, again, a companion report that talked about some of the specific challenges that the region faces in gender. Um, if we look at education, for instance, in East Asia, the performance with respect to gender at the primary level and secondary level is, in fact, very good. Um, girls do almost as well as boys through the secondary level. But if you go to the tertiary level, you find a very dramatic drop-off in in women participation in the education system. And so thinking through the issue of how that can be addressed effectively government policy, how the World Bank and other donors can support programs to deal with that at the tertiary level is obviously a key development issue for the region. And so that, that report and the follow-up we did at the regional level really becomes a matter that we can both discuss with governments in the region and through our investments follow-up on. We uh, we do a lot of partnership work in the World Bank. We try not to act alone within the region. And so we have partnerships both with developed countries. For example, in Korea, with Korea, the World Bank has set up a facility to help financing within the region to help uh, improve the financing capacity within the region. With Japan, we've developed a very strong relationship on dealing with uh, on dealing with disaster management with, China, with Japanese experience there. We work very closely with the ADB. ADB, the Asian Development Bank, is in a sense a regional replication of the World Bank. It works only in East and South Asia, but it provides many of the same services. And we're areas where we work together. Uh, we try to make sure we cooperate consistently. Um, we've been an active participant in the Pacific Forum each year, where the client states of the uh, of the Pacific get together, uh, where we've both done analytic work to talk about regional challenges and regional opportunities, but participated fully in the discussions. Uh, we have very strong relationships, as I indicated, with both AusAid in Australia and with New Zealand's um, New Zealand's assistance program where we work both in the region, particularly in the Pacific and in East Asia. But as the Australia's and Ausaid's program is increasing in Africa, in the Middle East, we're working very closely in those areas with Ausaid. Uh, we work, uh, obviously, uh, in China presents a very interesting challenge, not just within the region in terms of their outreach, but China is now becoming a fairly significant donor And it's investing significantly in Africa. It's investing significantly in other regions. And we've worked hard to try to build stronger relationships with China with the interest of ensuring that together we can provide more effective assistance. Um, The U.S. remains the largest largest member of the bank. And uh, as you may know, they're pushing a number of trade initiatives in the region. And we work with the United States. We work again with the EU in similar areas. Um, EU is an interesting case in that it's largely retreating, the individual countries of Europe are largely retreating for providing support in East Asia. I think with the exception of Myanmar, you're seeing a general movement away from the region. But the EU has moved into that vacuum and so we find ourselves providing an, a lot of support through the European community and working with the European community staff. Uh, we also have in the past year set up a larger office in Singapore. One of the challenges in the region is how do you mobilize private sector resources? Singapore has obviously been very effective at that. And so the bank has put a large office in, in Singapore to work with that government. Today we provide somewhere between six and seven billion dollars a year in support, combining our, our bank support with our idas support. In addition to the bank side, the private sector side does another billion and a half dollars in support for the region, and so we remain a large uh, financial source of financial support for the region. On the knowledge side, between the bank and IFC, we do about a hundred million dollars of work um, with governments on, a, on specific challenges that countries face. As I indicated, it may be a study of a health system, study of an education system, study of power challenge, sometimes very very much more narrow issues. Governments will come to us and ask for advice on tax regime so we can provide what we call just-in-time service as well. We have a total portfolio in the region of about 40 billion dollars. This comprises the, the amount of resources we have to provide to the various projects we do. We have about 350 ongoing projects in the region that can can comprise of everything to about 40 projects in China to where in the Pacific Islands we may have a handful of projects depending upon the size of our overall program. So we, we, we retain both a very large financing presence in the region, but very much directed at specific investments where bank funds are combined with government funds to implement projects in the region. There remains important demand for bank services. Many people ask me, well, if the region is prospering so well, why do governments come and ask the bank for help? I think there there are two special reasons for that which reflect the difference between the World Bank, perhaps, and, and the typical commercial bank lending. One is the analytic work that we provide, that we provide a combination of both financial and analytic services, a level of analytic services traditional banks don't provide. The other thing we do is that when we invest in a project, suppose we invest in a roads project, we systematically supervise that project over its duration of implementation. So unlike a bank which will be largely concerned with getting the funds back, World Bank doesn't have to worry very much about getting repaid. We we have a pretty good record with respect to getting repaid. Our challenge is how do we make sure that the projects are done well? How do we make sure that the funds are used appropriately, that there's not leakage? And so as a matter of practice, we we supervise and visit all of the bank projects on a regular basis and ensure that what we finance is actually consistent with what the government then does in practice. We have um, heavy investment, as I said, in infrastructure. About half of our work is in infrastructure. We do about uh, 20 percent of the bank's lending is in human development in education and health. Uh, and the remainder is comprises of agriculture, about 20 percent, and about 20 percent of our lending is what we call policy lending, where we don't lend for physical investment, but we agree with the government on a policy change and provide funding which we believe will help implement that policy change. One of the nice things about working in East Asia in the bank is it is a better better operating portfolio than most of the bank. Uh, I can tell you that I've worked in Africa, the bank's portfolio in Africa is not quite as effective or quite as well implemented by the governments as in East Asia. All of our programs are implemented by the governments. We don't implement the projects that, that responsibility passes on to the government. So, right now, we have, uh, we've, we have an independent group in the bank that, that assesses every project that the bank does. And by that group's assessment, about 80 to 85 percent of bank projects are viewed as successful. That's the highest percentage in the bank in terms of overall percentages. Uh, we watch those statistics very closely because we want to make sure that if we are making mistakes, if there are problems in our portfolio, that we learn from those problems and, and figure out ways to address those problems. Um, finally, just some, some comments about uh, the resources available uh, to the bank. Um, in addition to the, to the bank funds, Uh, When I I worked in the bank, I had about $170 million a year to work with in terms of investment in staff, travel and expenses. Um, We have uh, a a very large use of trust funds, of which uh, Australia is a major source. These are funds given to the bank to actually work on specific issues. And so uh, Australia actually provides about a fifth of those trust funds for the bank. So it's a very important relationship to us. In total, um, our trust funds represented about a third of our total budget in East Asia, so it represented an important overall source of resources for us. Just a couple of things about the bank, IFC, and another part of the bank, which is called MEGA. It's an insurance agency. We have tried very hard within the region to make sure the various parts of the bank work closely together. So we try in the private sector very often the World Bank will do analytic work about the private sector to facilitate IFC investments in particular areas, to facilitate MIGA, which supports, provides insurance for different investments, and to ensure those investments are then facilitated and expanded. So we like to see ourselves as a bank group working in the region. I think largely um, that approach uh, makes us more effective in the countries, but anytime you have a bureaucracy with different parts, making those parts work together can obviously be a challenge. Uh, we keep very close track of the impact the bank projects and looking at what the bank uh, is doing at the project level. And so just some examples of, of where our assessments have come out. In China we helped, we put together a TV program, which over half a billion people benefited from. Um, an enormous investment in education, thousands of schools were built. Um, on the energy sector and in the water sector, the bank's been a major investor in innovative energy. I mentioned the uh, I mentioned the work on uh, on wind farms. We're also a major investor in um, in uh, in some of the work uh, China's done on improving the technology across. Um, across its field. And when uh, the Chinese have adopted a technology for improving energy efficiency, the nice thing is while they may borrow that from one project in the bank. It will then be integrated in all the work that they do in that particular uh, technology. We've been a major investor in Vietnam in both schools and roads, major investment in rural electrification in Vietnam and in Laos. Vietnam is a case that um, when the rural electrification program started about 10 years ago about 10% of rural areas were connected to electricity today about 95% of vietnam is connected to rural electricity big program in mongolia on microfinance on providing finance for new uh, for new programs big program in png where we've been extensively involved on the bank side on the road network and improving the road network IFC has been extensively involved in bringing in the private sector to provide telephone service. Improved telephone service has in fact been an enormous change within the Pacific and is making an enormous difference on the development front. Indonesia has been one of the largest borrowers from the bank, literally across the bank's portfolio. We've been involved in Indonesia. Just a couple concluding messages, and then we can respond to any questions, comments, or concerns. You know, East Asia is obviously a dynamic growing region. It's obviously a region where the interaction between economic policies, investments by the global community, including the World Bank, have resulted in important development progress. The challenge now is to sustain and build upon that broadly, but also to make sure that in the less performing countries that they're able to perform similarly to the successful countries. As I've indicated, impressive poverty gains in terms of reduction the number of people in poverty, but the challenge now remains that significant number of population that still lives below $2 a day. And finally, I think the challenge of climate change is going to be enormous and remain enormous in the region. Uh, I think on the bank side, we feel we can remain an important part of financing and of doing analytic work to support the changes in the region. Uh, we'd like to think that by sustaining what has been a good performance at the portfolio level that we will remain a preferred lender by the governments and government interest both in the bank lending and analytic work um, will continue. And finally, I think a special challenge is this issue of ensuring that the success of East Asia, and particularly the success of the more successful countries, both is recognized and taken more broadly to facilitate success in other countries, this area of South-South cooperation, but also because of the success How can we work together with the region to make sure the region has a broader voice, a stronger voice in the overall development efforts in the global community? So that remains, I think, an important continuing challenge for the bank. I actually i was going to talk about my successor, but my successor has now been succeeded. Uh, My successor actually got promoted uh, to a job in the center of the bank. But we now have a a new vice president. He's actually a Dutch colleague in the bank. He's a person that's been directly involved in raising IDA resources, the soft funds. So I'm very confident he'll come with strong priorities to continuing the work in the Pacific with the with the uh, with the lower income countries. Um, and he comes with a perspective. Again, East Asia is a nice place to come and work because of the success that has been has been attained. So I'll stop here.
2: Thanks very much, Jim. For those of you who don't know me, uh, I'm the person who gives out the gifts at the end. Um, I'm Andrew O'Neill, Director of the Griffith Asia Institute, and it's my um, great pleasure this evening to uh, provide the vote of thanks and and really close off what I think's been been an outstanding First Perspectives Asia for for 2013. And I'd like to start, really, a brief close by thanking uh, once again our wonderful partners here at at GOMA, Ruth and and Russell, who have um, really provided... Uh, really the backbone of support for for these events, the wonderful, not just the wonderful environment, but also also a wonderful collaboration in terms of coming up with really outstanding speakers. I'd like to thank you all for coming tonight as well. I think the question and answer session's been, you know, one of the real highlights for me this evening. The other highlight for me this evening was that I learnt a lot about the scope and depth of what the World Bank does in the region. And I think the depth of country expertise the fact that we're really talking here about a global institution that's doing things very specific to individual countries in our region is is in itself quite quite significant. And it's not just about economic development, it's also about a whole range of other social, environmental and even political contextual issues. So I think there are a lot of really interesting themes to emerge tonight and the discussion around Myanmar, I think, was, or Burma, was particularly interesting in terms of uh, opening up uh, another yeah. challenge uh, and opportunity for for the World Bank so uh, really it all remains to me this evening to uh, say thank you once again to Jim who I know was uh, busily employed at a uh, workshop earlier this week by Griffith University so I- I'd like to thank you Jim for making the time to come and talk to us this evening and uh, thank you very much thank you. Thank you.
0: for more Griffith University podcasts go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.